0: Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. What's up everybody and welcome to episode number one of the Fall Sessions. And this is just kind of a collaboration idea that I had in my head. So I reached out to Aaron Blessy and uh, I asked him, hey, dude, you want to come on uh, on the podcast for several episodes and just talk about the thing that we both love the most? And that is deer hunting. And he's like, let's do it. So this, my friends, is episode one of this creation of this collaboration. Uh, if you guys don't know who he is, he is the one of the hosts of the Fall Podcast, thus calling it the Fall Sessions. And um, he is a fanatic behind the bow as well. He's had some good success over the years. He's been in the tree stand for several years and several hours, and that means that you're able to observe deer, their behavior, uh, how they act how they react and what you can get away with and what you can't get away with and so i will say that he's the perfect guest because he's similar to me i think we we roughly have you know we, we started hunting hard seriously around the same time i mean he he was maybe just a little bit earlier than me but then you know we put We sports creeps in social life creeps in and then we don't kick it off and become serious till later down the road. I feel like I was 26. He may have been a little earlier than that, but this these sessions, I'm going to start breaking everything down. Uh, There's going to be a lot more detail. There's going to be a lot more. uh, Let's see here a lot more details that get covered. So uh, we talk heavily about crop rotation. We talk about deer behavior in this episode. Uh, we talk about what you can get away with, what you can't get away with in, in some of the upcoming episodes, we're going to break down things like staging areas, bedding, bedding areas. Uh, we're going to talk about how deer move through terrain and, uh, where you should put your tree stands and like just everything. Uh, I think you guys get it. So that's what, uh, today's episode is about. Uh, uh, I'll tell you what kind of, uh, So there's what these episodes, they're going to launch on Mondays for a while. I'm still going to include all the other content that I put out, but this is going to be a a Monday type episode and I'm going to put these out, you know, for the foreseeable future. Uh, One thing I've learned about myself, I don't know if you, some people can do it, some people don't, some people enjoy it, some people don't. I absolutely love coaching Youth sports. And I don't know what it is, as frustrating as it could be at times when you have uh, groups of kids that don't listen. Uh, I absolutely love coaching uh, kids' sports. And the verification came earlier today. We had two football games, right? And we had two mistakes. The whole, I'm going to say in those two games, we had two mistakes. One, was a play went outside our our cornerback got sucked in the next one was we had a lineman that bit on a uh, they got bit and got sucked in on a on a on a fake handoff he got sucked in and then they were able to score two touchdowns off that we ended up winning we got three touchdowns or three or four touchdowns in that game but I brought the kids in told them what they did wrong and they didn't make any more mistakes after that and so here we are what five weeks now into this this uh, spring football season flag football season and the kids are starting to get it they're starting to be less afraid of blocking we uh, I, I give them this motto blocking scores touchdowns I said if we can block guys we can score touchdowns and s- touchdowns will win the games now they this is a youth league so technically you're not supposed to keep score but everybody keeps score And because the kids keep score and today was a fun day because the, you know, I'll just be realistic and and honest here. There's multiple levels of skill, right? We have the top tier, the kids that you want it. You wish you could give the ball to every time. Then you have the middle tier. Which, you know, if their brain and their body are functioning at the same day, they can be pretty good. And then we have, you know, the kids who just, they haven't grown into their body yet. They're a little clumsy. They may not be necessarily into sports, but their parents put them into sports. And everybody was firing today. Even the the kids that, you know, I would call ha- have a little bit less skill. I was, Because the kids at the top did their job, got us some points on the board. I was able to spread it out and give some other kids, some younger kids the opportunity to run the ball, carry the ball, do some special things. And uh man, we had we had a run by one of these kids today and I was I have I was so pumped up for this kid and I don't know and that was right then and there that I was like, "Oh man, I love doing this." And so, I think I'm just going to keep You know keep doing the coaching thing Uh, the I might even just keep doing it through the fall too I know that uh, the fall is busy for me especially I drew South Dakota I got I did draw South Dakota I'm still in in what two weeks I should know if I draw Kansas and so then I'll be able to put the schedule together I may miss a game as far as coaching is concerned or practice is concerned but man it is it, it's it's something that I truly enjoy and I love watching these kids uh, come together as a team. I love watching them be happy. I love watching the discipline also seek in where at the beginning of the season, you know, I had to tell them, hey, listen, when I'm talking, you're not talking. I said, we have two rules. Number one, when I'm talking, you don't talk. Number two, the second rule is we have a lot of fun. If you can do num- rule number two, rule number one will come real easy. And I tell you what, they listened today and they did exactly what they were supposed to do. And that fired me up. So um, if you get the opportunity to coach your children, I say, take it. Uh, The world needs them. If it wasn't for me, if it wasn't for me stepping in on this spring league, when the guy emailed me about 16 kids wouldn't have been able to play because there, there would have just been too many kids uh, without coaches or on a team and then the rotation is off and you can't, you're not able to do it. All right, uh, we gotta do some commercials here. If you're looking for a saddle, you gotta go check out Tethered. Tethered has a, a banana lineup of gear and its it, it truly is some of the best, right? They have saddles, they have platforms, they have climbing sticks and all the accessories that you need for for uh, climbing sticks, or excuse me, for uh, the, the gear, All—all all, all of it you need. But here's the kicker, and this is the thing that I like the most, uh, Tethered is also, has they've built this community, and within this community are people who know how to properly use this, they make, they make content about it, you can watch videos, you can listen to podcasts, you can learn tips, tricks, you can uh, learn mods. And, and things like that. So if you're looking for, a, not necessarily just a saddle hunting gear, but a community, go check out Tethered Man. And not only will you will you be happy with the actual product itself, but also the information that you will learn within that community. So uh, awesome job Tethered. Uh, Wasp Archery, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna give you the discount code right now so, while it's on my mind, NFC20. NFC20WaspArchery.com. I get you twenty percent off. And uh, what we, what I love about this company, is just, it's just the consistency, the the durability of the products, man. I haven't had, other than like, a blade break when I hit a deer in his shoulder, right? And it was it ran it ran around. I shouldn't even say it broke. It bent and but it still did its job right and so they they have they have in my opinion one of the best designed broadheads with the best material a majority of their heads are still made in the united states and that's just a a deadly combination for something that just is supposed to destroy whatever it hits so go check out wasparchery.com i'm a huge fan of the jackhammer and the boss four blade there's several other to choose from uh, VortexOptics.com, again, another a company who has created a community, this really big community around their product. Uh, these guys are doing amazing things. So uh, it is right now, I believe, is all of the Western tags are starting to get drawn, right? So as people start to put together their trip plans for, um, you know, uh, start to put together their trip plans, you got to keep vortex in mind because a trip out west may warrant a different optic whether that's a bigger magnification in your binoculars or even a spotting scope and uh, man they got really good binoculars and they got really good spotting scopes on top of that these guys have an apparel line now it's like a lifestyle brand they are money absolute money uh I, dude i wear their clothes every day now hats every day jackets rain jacket a new rain jacket just came out go check that out and so here in june we got some uh some more cool things to introduce from vortex so stay tuned vortex optics.com hunt stand if you are looking for uh one of the most popular mobile apps the reason it's the most popular is because it because it has the most functionality now i'm not going to sit here and break down absolutely everything that makes hunt stand amazing they do a good job of that on their website all right so go to huntstand.com read up on all the functionality also read up on their pro whitetail platform that's a little bit of an upgrade from their base uh from their base uh, experience but it offers some really cool things huntstand.com Uh, the the world's most popular app. It's very, very affordable and uh, the world's most popular hunting app. So go check that out. And last but not least, the Woodman's Pal if uh, if you're looking for a habitat tool, uh, something to carry on your hip or in a pack or keep in your truck that helps you clear vegetation, hack out some weeds, hack out some shooting lanes, uh, keep grass from blowing in front of your trail cameras, it really is this multifunction tool that allows you to do some habitat work, man. I think the company was founded in 1941, it's made in America, and it's an amazing, it dude, it, I got one over there. I should have, I should be holding it right now. But uh, it's It's durable. I mean, just, you just hold the thing and you go, this thing ain't breaking. And so go check out woodmanspal.com and uh, read up on all of the products that they have. And, and give it a shot, man. It, it's a, a great tool to just have on you at all times, especially when you're out in the woods. So there's that. Huge shout out to all of you for taking time out of your day. Huge shout out to uh to all of the brands that support this podcast if you own a company and you are interested in advertising on the network or on this show please reach out to me uh we have a pretty good reach and uh that's it let's get into episode one of the fall sessions enjoy three two one All right, ladies and gentlemen, uh, this is kind of a special episode because it's going to be a series for a while here where I'm going to have kind of a permanent guest on the Nine Finger Chronicles, and that is Aaron from The Fall Podcast, and we're just going to talk deer hunting. And um, I kind of, I've listened to his podcast, I have uh, had him as a guest on this podcast, and I feel like we're kind of in the same boat, but a little different at the same time. So, so I wanted yeah. to, I I wanted to get, uh, I wanted to get him on, and we're just going to talk deer hunting for you know a handful of weeks in a row here, and uh, just yeah. kind of see what happens. There's no plan, there's no uh, real direction. I know it's going to be about whitetails and maybe a couple curveballs. What do you think?
1: I love curveballs, man. Yeah. Let's
0: do it. Yeah, I can't hit the curve, though.
1: (laughs) You know, uh, I'm a big baseball guy and played baseball my whole life and everything. And, you know, curveball was always, uh, to go down this rabbit hole, was always difficult. But uh, if you stay back on the ball and, you know, throw the knob of the the bat at it, you'll be all right. You'll you'll get it. Just don't get out in front of it.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yep. I I can remember playing baseball in... It was nuts, man. I, I was... 14 years old, 15 years old, something like that, and played against a kid who was the, my same age, and he had a curveball, uh, and <laughs> so then I was just like, how can the, how is this kid throwing a curveball? And it was like a like a 60, uh, you know, 60 or that, which is pretty fast for a 15 year old, but 50, 60 mile an hour had some movement on it, and I w- I couldn't hit it, I couldn't hit it four yeah. times up to bat that that game, and I struck out every time.
1: Yeah, you'll, uh, you'll get that in those big jobs. But uh, definitely, my problem was when playing baseball, um, as my dog is going nuts in the background, I mean, someone's here and I don't know what she's doing. But anyway, um, my problem with baseball is I couldn't hit with a wood bat. So we'd always go to like wood bat tournaments and stuff like that. Oh, and yeah. it's totally different hitting with a wood bat. And, you know, going into college then, you know, we, we didn't hit with wood bats then. But, you know, college, it uh, – you know you're always like looking for that next step of like are you going to go a little bit farther maybe after college and everything and i just couldn't hit with a with bat yeah. right. and you know i'm 5'10 you know i was a, i was a buck 75 a second baseman could only throw a little bit and i was decently fast and you know the the minors and the majors were not calling my name exactly yeah <laughs> just put it that way. right
0: and, and so i can remember the same thing i had a dream in in uh for a little bit where i was like hey uh <laughs> I want to play for the Iowa Hawkeyes, man. That's, that's, I want to play football for the Iowa Hawkeyes. But then I realized how much work needed to be put in, and the younger me didn't want to put in any of that work. <laughs> so, yep. so I did not, uh, so that, so that dream kind of ended after high school, you know, where. Let me ask
1: you this though yeah. if you would have played baseball, you'd probably have 10 fingers still right now, right?
0: That's a great question. That's a great question. Well, it was after college so okay. it would have here's, wh- here's what here's what would have happened i am looking at do you follow marvel at all you, do you watch any of the marvel movies like the superhero man, movies man you might
1: be pissed i don't watch any marvel i've not watched any marvel star wars anything like that
0: okay so here here's they you know they they have the time stone right and then the time stone <laughs> i am explaining like you're, you're tuned out right now. Like, are we going to talk about deer? Are we going to talk just about? I muted my headphones. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, if you could go back and say, all right, uh, if Dan was good at, you know, there's alter- alternate realities. If Dan was good at baseball, what would his life look like? Well, I would, I don't think I would have been good enough even after college to go to the pros. So I still would have had to get a job somewhere. Gotcha. You know, Um, or I could have been like a major or a minor league coach, which would have been sweet. I I feel like if in an alternate reality, I'm a minor league baseball coach who doesn't give a shit if he wins or loses like that, like a movie that would be a movie like minor league, but the coach doesn't care. He's just there. You know, like, he's there. He always has a losing record, but he doesn't care. He's getting paid.
1: Let me ask you this since we're going down the sports Mm -hmm. role. This is my, uh, you know, question my buddies and I ask each other, too. Like, looking now, knowing what you know now, to you, what would be the – like, could be any sport, could be any position, anything. What would be the most ideal uh, situation if you played a professional sport? Like, what position would that be?
0: Yeah. That's a great question. It would be uh first baseman. Okay. Uh I and I was actually decent at baseball. Uh I I was okay at football, but at 6-1, you know, I you know, I was talking to a guy the other week, he played football for the University of Wisconsin, and man, he got up to like 245 and I think he was probably around the same height as me, but they wanted him to like gain all this weight and just it basically change his body type. Then he made it to the A- NFL and you got not only now you have all this weight on you, now you have to be fast too. So you're just mm-hmm. training and eating and training and eating and things like that. So, um, I think I would have been undersized to play I was too slow to play anything other than lineman or you know maybe like some kind of blitzing linebacker but football would have been out of the question just because I'm not fast enough so I was okay at baseball I could have I, I could hit I could field and so I feel like first baseman probably would have been the best possible outcome for me you
1: I got two okay. and one I think being a closer closing mm. pitcher would be the best because you know they're in my opinion and baseball is a dying breed which really sucks for a baseball guy like me and I still love watching baseball I watch Tigers I'm a big Detroit Tigers fan and I watch just about every game you know it, it, I do and I just love the the numbers and the situations and stuff like that but like there's nothing better than playoff baseball yeah in October and November and stuff like that like you know we're already in the fall hunting it's getting colder you know and baseball's on when you come in from a a hunt or something like that you kick on the game it's in the there's the atmosphere is ridiculous so I always thought it'd be really cool being like the Mariano Rivera that is like you come in game seven and you literally have to get three of the hardest outs when everybody is at their loudest yeah I love that part it's almost being like at the free throw line with one second left you got to hit this this shot like I think being a closer would be ridiculously cool. The other one is being a kicker in the NFL, a field goal kicker. Oh yeah. Because and and I'm and I'm I want to preface this with you know, I love to hit people when I was in football. Like mm-hmm. I, I have I'm not afraid to hit anybody. But being a kicker, that same kind of stage, like games on the line, one second left, got to drill this 60-yard field goal to win it, the Adam Benateri's the Super Bowl, stuff like that. Like it, I think it's even more to be like sit stagnant the whole game and then you got to turn it on for, for an, 10 instant,
0: seconds. an instant instant. Yeah.
1: And I think there's something to be said for that as far as like, yeah, you might not be the most athletic guy in the field, but the mental capacity and the mental game of that is just like astronomical in my mind. So I think one of those two would be really cool.
0: Yeah. Okay. So if I could be anything, I would I would be something like that too. Like if I was to pick yep. number one, punters and um, punters and kickers, they're not getting hurt like everybody else is getting hurt. No, nope. um, closing pitchers. There's there is an aura around like Dennis Dennis Eckersley. Um, I'm a huge St. Louis Cardinals fan, so uh, yep. th- so um, uh, Isringhausen back in the day, dude would come up Fruit and gas. yeah, just smoke people. And, and so yep. I, that there's an aura around these closing pitchers That's like, are oh, badasses is coming out. Like, you, you know, the, yeah. the, uh, the movie, what's the movie with uh, Charlie Sheen in it? I forget. Uh, oh, major, league. major league. Right. And yeah. the music comes on, he walks out, punches his glove. Wild thing. Yeah. Wild thing <laughs> throws, you know, throws a hundred and, uh, Chapman, you know, back in the day. And so, yep. yeah. And so. Yeah, that, those two, or, you know, just a, a punter who cracks beers on the sidelines, you know?
1: <laughs> Got a beer uh, gut. Yeah. But, Rips darts, I mean. Yeah,
0: exactly. And so here's like a perfect transition to talk about deer hunting. Because deer hunting is a lot like being stagnant, especially if you, not necessarily spot and stock, but if you're a tree stand hunter and you're in a really good position, stagnant all day. We're all morning, we're all afternoon, and then boom, it's game time. And you have to react in an absolute instant to get the shot.
1: Yep. I'll even go a step further. And it's like, you're stagnant the whole season. Mm
0: -hmm. You know,
1: it's, you know, you're always thinking, but you're, 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 you're in a train of thought of like, you're almost, I'm going to use the word relaxed, but you're almost like in a relaxed state the whole season until. You look over, you hear a twig snap, and you're like, oh, shit, that's the deer I've been looking for this yep. whole time. And then everything is amplified. Exactly. I mean, put put 100,000 fans cheering in front of you, and you have to make this kick from 60 yards. Yeah. And it's like, you know, or even a, a chip shot from 25, and it's like, it's that moment. And the thing yep. is, in football, you know, if we're comparing kickers to, to deer hunting, you almost you have a. I feel like you have a little bit more control than you do with a wild animal. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, you could check something at the line if you don't see it, it's like fire, fire. You know, let's go to play two here or something. Doesn't happen a lot, but then there is no checks at the line when you're in a tree when a wild animal's coming at you. There yeah. is no checks. Yeah. Like it is, it is. Hopefully he comes by here and oh god, this is the first time I've seen this deer on the hoof. And he is way bigger than I thought, and yeah. I have to put one arrow in the right spot.
0: Right. You know, imagine a field goal kicker if the ball was moving back and forth and he had oh, to time man. it like he had to time it perfect. That would be nuts. That would be nuts. So hard. Okay. So, how many years have you been a, a serious bow hunter?
1: A serious bow hunter? I would say. Um, and this is a question I ask a lot of guys on my podcast too, because I always thought I was a serious bow hunter. Even, you know, I started bow hunting when I was 12. Right. Um, But, you know, go through high school, I played three sports and hunting was like a big passion of mine, but it was just a weekend warrior thing. It was like yep. maybe hunt in the morning on Saturday and then you get rocket football or something or whatever. Yep. Um, And then in college I played baseball again, but then the studies really took over for my career, you know? So, um, I would honestly say I graduated um, college in, oh boy, 10 or 11. Yeah. Something like that. I can't remember. But I would say probably right around actually 2012, I would say I really started getting probably really serious as far as like it ingrained my life. Like it was 365 is when that flip switch. You know, in 2008 and 9, I was fortunate enough to kill two pretty good bucks in Michigan and that like was a stepping stone like the starter that was the fire starter and then it took a couple years for it to be like yep and then in 2012 I killed a a real good deer and then I'm like yeah this is this is it you know and then so probably for the last 10-11 years is probably you know I've been really serious that it's been 365.
0: Yeah and I I, I went through the same thing like I, I picked up my first bow I think I was 12 or 13 Mm -hmm. and then you know I I was the weekend warrior type football you know the best time to be out is also football so Saturday mornings uh, usually sore and exhausted Uh, I either had to say I'm gonna tough it up or I'm gonna sleep in and most most of the time I slept in right which mean meant that it was just usually Sunday mornings that I would go out or a Sunday afternoon I I didn't hunt during the school you know typically during the, the week I was a weekend warrior, just like you, and so then all that got shelved when the social aspect of high school. You know, I was also in student council. I was also, uh, you know, in other other sports and activities. Then I went to college, and college was just just a haze, right? And so I didn't I didn't do much. I did some pheasant hunting in in college. I did a little turkey hunting in I, in two thousand and one is when I started like my Turkey hunting, uh, period of my life, but it wasn't until 2006 when I moved back to Iowa from Alabama to really start. So it was at 2006. So I'm coming up on 20 years of what I would consider serious bow hunting. All right. Mm-hmm. And so the reason I'm asking these questions is cause I'm trying to identify trends, um, Things that you've seen throughout your hunting career, your bow hunting career, sitting in a tree, observing, and we can start really any time of the year. I think the best time to have this conversation is right now, because we're coming out of spring, we're able to start identifying bucks via trail cameras, what are deer doing? So what, what I'd like to do is have this conversation about trends that you've observed throughout the years. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC.
1: Yeah, and, you know, if you want to start right now, like, you know, as we're talking, we're in in middle of May, you know, and all the crops are being put in, like literally right now before I walk down here, uh, farmers around just putting crops in the ground and everything here. And like you said, you're starting to identify some bucks right now, Um, some bucks, have brows. some of them are you know have some pretty good beam length on them right yeah. now you can start identifying those and some trends that i've seen right now is you know a lot of it uh revolves around crop rotation as well like there's some areas in farm country that i hunt that uh if if it's a wheat year they put winter wheat the mm-hmm. farmers put winter wheat in i'm gonna hold a lot of deer yeah. um but the years that i don't it's like i don't see a deer for four or five months and then they'll show back up um but i will say like those upper end bucks that i i see in like a farm country setting like that uh from year to year i don't pick them up a lot year after year if that crop rotation is is not the way that like if they don't winter here it's it's a crapshoot it is literally i see a lot of like times where deer just don't come back you know and and they and the thing is, is i think that where I'm at, I think the deer have to branch out, and I think they may find something that they maybe not have had as far as like maybe a cover source or maybe uh, a food source that they really like, and they'll just stick close to there. Maybe a lack of yeah. pressure. um So, I think, you know, this time of year in May, and I think it's it's still delicate. Mm-hmm. It's still delicate as far as the pressure. Like I I hate pressuring deer no matter what all yeah. year. Um, but, like, right now, I'm waiting for a couple bucks to, to show back up, and they're not. Yeah. And um, there's a couple that I can identify without antlers just because I know some features on them. Like a torn
0: um, like a torn ear or a scar or something?
1: Scar, torn ear. And, it, and the scars are really hard right now, too, because you see every doe that's trying to rip their winter coat off. Oh, yeah. It looks like they have scars on them. Yep. But there's a couple issues. Like, one may have a, a hoof that's – you know we'll, we just won't get into that he's very identifiable but um an ear is a big one or a marking on the face or something yeah. like that but um yeah I, i'm waiting man right now i've got some cameras out and waiting for them to show back up and usually usually by end of may uh it's really weird it's something i've i've really seen but if i don't get that deer by end of may more like the percentage goes way down. I'm, I, there's a good chance. I'm not going to see him again. Yeah. Um, if I know he made it through the, through the, the previous fall, I don't know what it is, man. It's just one of those things that they move to greener pastures and you know, they just don't see him again.
0: Yeah. So I, that's one thing that you mentioned a whole bunch there done that needs to be unpacked crop rotation. That's the thing that really hit me hard. And so, last year was a bean year. And so, bean year for me, and, and th- so this farm has beans and it has corn on it, um, but majority of the the bottom where the deer mostly hang out, it was all in, in beans, the main farm. And then, uh, and then also beans that touch the timber, but then also corn further back. So, anyway... Uh, the, the point I'm trying to make here is on, on this, this particular year, just lower deer numbers during the breeding season, right? During the rut. A lot of activity during the summer and right away into September, velvet sheds, there's a shift and then things just, the shift goes but never comes back, right? On a corn year, it's the same thing. Really good summer pictures. Corn, the corn's here and There's a shift in September, the deer go away, but then in the, in the, uh, I would say in the late October timeframe, somewhere about, it's almost like clockwork, 26th, 27th, 28th of October, big dogs start to show back up and they start to daylight in, in wherever their, their pattern is now. And it's not really consistent every year because I always, I almost feel like there's a new dominant buck on the farm almost every year, right? Mm -hmm. Yes, there are some returning customers and there are deer that run the same circuit. I'm thinking about one in particular, but on a corn year, man, the, the rut is so much better. The, you know, and even after they take the corn out, which is, you know, sometime in that mid, depends on obviously the weather. Sometimes it's late November. The, the, when the corn is in, the rut is like if, if the corn stays in during the rut, the, you don't see as many deer, but you have more sparks of like heavy action, I would say. Like a doe comes through the timber and, you know, there's multiple bucks to run in. Now, when the corn is out, you see more deer, more deer come by my tree stand just because there's less cover in the fields but you don't see the hot action like you would i i, I don't know but that's just a, a trend that i've identified uh throughout the years um
1: i've got a trend i got a question for you yeah
0: and just because
1: so those corn years do you see your deer density go up in the corn years uh, have you have you noticed that
0: yes yes now there there are local deer groups like right, doe groups that they tend to, uh, they're more consistent in that time frame. Let's see. And then it just seems like there's way more deer in the woods on corn ears. So okay. So everything is just better in corn ears. Now, bean years, I would say early season, everything seems really good. As far as, you know, the doe group sticking around, but then when the breeding season hits, the big dog... There, there's still a couple big dogs on the, on the uh, farm, but not as many as if it was a corn year. Corn just sucks them into this farm, and they stay until the so- shotgun season. And once the shotgun season hits, there's no return. Like, everything leaves the farm. I mean, it, it, it gets... This year was a weird year though, I will say, because although I did have shotgun hunters pushing multiple days in a row in February, my, my hit list buck returned with still antlers. And that's how I know he you know, he made it through, at least made it through the hunting season. Sure. And so, yes. How about with you? Same question to you. Is there, is there a particular year or crop rotation that you like more?
1: So for sure, like more, I like bean years more and that's going to come to it probably as a shock to a lot of people, but like in my farm country stuff, I will take beans 10 out of 10 years over corn because yeah. a couple of things, my, a lot of my corn years are silage corn. So they're coming off in September. Real, the real real. Yeah. yeah. And they're in the farmers leave nothing, you know? So it's, if they're not putting a cover crop, that field is, is done for for the rest of the year so and this is a conversation i just had with a buddy yesterday the bean years are way better and uh, and and you kind of you kind of hit it they are way better you know up until like the 20th of october yeah um i love that i love the first 20 days of october because the first five days i can still pattern a in, in in ag land i can still pattern a real good deer here in michigan yeah now from that fifth to the 10th time frame eleven time frame somewhere in there they are gone they for some reason they'll just like that's when the, the the dark camera pictures are starting and i glass a lot and that's when i don't see them on the glass it's almost like they're that's when their shift happens a little bit yeah. okay and then i do have historical historical data on a couple uh you know I would I'll call them hub scrapes or community scrapes that from the 10th of October until about the 17th of October, my ass is gonna be in the tree right over those scrapes because one of the more mature deer in the area is gonna hit it mid-morning in that five or six time day time frame. That's how like intimate I am with the farm one of the farms that I have to hunt. Um that is where you're gonna find me because yeah. if I can if I can withstand that sit in the morning and a lot of times, honestly, Dan, that I've been not hunting first thing in the morning. Like I'll take my daughter to school, come home, get my stuff on, and I'll go get in yeah. at nine o'clock in the morning and sit till one o'clock. Because yeah. that 10 until noon is when it usually a deer is just he's coming back in the area. He's hitting that scrape because he's trying to figure out who the hell is kind of taking over his stuff in the last six, seven days. Yeah. I love that time frame. And then Usually from about the 17th, you know, of October until maybe a little bit of after the 20th or 21st, 23rd, somewhere in there, that kind of shift happens a little bit again. You're gonna start seeing more deer, more of those bigger bucks. Um, they're not as frequent. They're yeah. they're more of like they're starting to roam a little bit. They might have caught some scent uh, on a different farm or from a doe or something like that. But they're gonna come back. They'll mm-hmm. come back. You know. And then it's like go time again around the 25th. Um, So those are kind of the trends that I see, especially in ag land. I love hunting ag. And what I mean by ag is like, there's no big timber around me. The biggest section of timber might be six acres, Mm -hmm. you know, but you got wooded fence rows, you got ditches, like you get, you know, you guys in Iowa, we get a lot of those terraces. I wish we had like terraces around here because it can, those, man, I love driving around Iowa and seeing terraces and seeing in the rut you know how many deer you you know it like you can see a big buck bedded up with a doe in a terrace and you can spot and stalk them and that is some of the coolest things yeah i've seen you know
0: yeah there's so. not there there is terraces around where i where i hunt in iowa i will say though i also hunt, like most of my hunting well on the new farm that i have access to it's more of just very small chunks of timber with i'm gonna say Low, it's it's farm country, but all of the lower spots, the drainages have trees in them. Okay, so along all the cricks have trees, but it's farmed right up into into that. Now, let's see. When when we're starting to talk about breeding, then, and you know, seeing the seeing the deer, the deer start to do their movement. When do you notice? an uptick in actual movement or is it pretty consistent
1: not well i mean general deer movement does fawns little bucks it's i see that all the time yeah like you know you just see you you get when you hunt a farm so much and you can glass it a lot and and keep tabs on it like i have family groups of does that i can identify from year to year Mm -hmm. like i just can but now with those more mature bucks that we're looking for the older deer, which could be like a three or four year old or older Um, though, that movement really starts ramping up. Like I said, it's kind of an ebb and flow thing Um, in the middle of October. Like it is, you get like a three day window. When mm-hmm. he shows up, you get three days and he's gone. Yeah. And then you don't know when he's going to show back up. I think it's a three to four day window, but then, you know, consist more consistent 25th of October is here in Michigan. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the things where I've traveled, I've traveled to hunt a lot as well. It's, it's across the board, basically about the same, it just depends on like geographically where you go now, Kansas, you know, I've talked about Kansas uh, last time we were doing the podcast, like in like a Southern Kansas or, you know, it, it kind of like moves back a week to 10 days, yep. you know, for me anyway, and in in what I've experienced there. But anywhere else I go, usually it's that 25th, man. If you give me the 25th through the 31st of October, I would take those days over any other days in the fall to hunt. Give me those five or six days. That's when I see across the board trends, no matter what, where I'm at, unless you get a little farther south. um, What I mean, south, like Kentucky, you know, Tennessee, stuff like that. When things start happening a little later, any of the northern, midwestern, northern states, like, 25th man is when i see more of a consistent daylight bigger deer that you're trying to target more mature deer that's when it really starts ramping up for me
0: yeah And so in, where, where I hunt, I notice can sit like, so I have a lot of trail cameras out. All right. You take, let's just say you take away 75% of my trail cameras and I put them into the, in, into certain positions. It would make it, or let's say before I upgraded and got more trail cameras,
1: mm-hmm.
0: the data that I was receiving would imply that Deer movement was very low in, you know, like from, from the time they shed their velvet to late October, there's the, there's slow movement, but I, but I added roughly over the past five years, five to seven years, I've slowly added trail cameras every year, right? Buy a couple, put them out, buy a couple, put them out, um, get some cell cams out, and, and so now you're instantly starting to get data. Here's one. Here's what I've noticed on the farms that I hunt. There is from from the time velvet sheds to the time uh, I would say mid late late October 25th, 26th. Like the 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 date the 28th hits me because that's when my target bucks typically daylight is, is right around that 28th. And the whole point I'm trying to make here is that the the deer are moving every day. They're moving every, almost every day. They're moving through the property at some way, shape, or form, not the same path every time. They're taking different paths to different areas, but they are moving. And so it's just that they're not moving during daylight, right? Mm-hmm. So all of this data that I've collected throughout the years tells me, hey, man, there's no point in going in there to chase them uh, while they're nocturnal or I'm not, I don't even want to say nocturnal while they're moving. Most of the movement is happening after daylight or after, after dark before daylight. Right. So you start to see these trends and so it keeps me out of the woods. And so that's why I have a real big problem with people saying there's a lull, you know, Oh, the October lull don't hunt. Well, it's not that the deer aren't moving because my trail cameras And data says they are moving and sometimes even right in a very rare occasion that weather front comes through. And I mean, it has to be a major it would have to be a major huge temperature drop, potential snow in mid-October, lots of precipitation and rain, like a huge weather event for almost multiple days to even get me excited to go out in mid-October into a good into a good stand location. And so that's why I mean, I have a I have a problem with the lull because in my in from my experience the lull doesn't exist, the lull only exists if you do this hunting, all of a sudden then 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 the movement stops, it, it doesn't stop, it 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 mm-hmm. keeps going. Then in that late October frame, that's when it ramps up. That's when the the, uh, the, the scrapes start to really blow up. That's when I'm starting Mm -hmm. to see major rubs. That's when I'm starting to see all this crazy shit go down in, in, you know, on trail cameras all the way up until that third week in November. And then it slides down again to, to Thanksgiving. And then it starts to slide. But that's when I get the most trail cameras of mature bucks is the second half of November. Cause, okay because the, they've they've bred they've bred a handful of deer does and now they're back into, hey, I'm gonna go try to find one more right yep. what's what from a from a early season pre-rut and I, pre-rut is the most intriguing to me. When in for most of the properties that you've hunt and you can even talk about your experience down in Kansas uh, and other states, what does what's the pre-rut time frame look like for you? As far as what I'm doing? or well, no, just like the dates and I know that or okay. the dates and what the deer are doing in like leading up to the pre-rut and even during this pre-rut time frame
1: so i'm gonna I'm gonna try to like segregate it a little bit here because i I have the finger on the pulse here in Michigan pretty, pretty heavily. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I've seen a three-year-old deer, which here in Michigan, I'm trying to kill a three-year-old or better. That's, that's what it is. So that's my target. Uh, October 24th, it was the 24th and it was 2000 and, oh boy, I think it was 2020, Uh, 20, it was 20. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: On October 24th, I watched a three-year-old buck that I, was trying to kill breed a doe for thirty-six hours. Mm. Now um to me that is more of a time where like they're seeking. They're out there moving and you know, not to say a doe couldn't come into Estrus at that time. So, you know, I see a lot of a lot of does actually physically get bred or, or you know the deer a buck tries to breed a doe around that time frame, 24th, 25th, 26th. Um what I'm trying to do, and what I see in that time frame, is I'm 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 trying not to get skewed from those times that I have seen that you know getting bred because if he's locked down with her for 36 or how many ever hours, I mean literally they didn't move the they didn't move a 20 yard by 20 yard section in a bean field on a main road for 36 hours. So um, they
0: stayed in that little area
1: i've got i've got film and everything of it all like so how that kind of went down is uh the night before i my wife had to work she's a nurse so i had, was on kid duty and i was going to get pizza for supper and i couldn't hunt that night and uh i was going to get pizza and i was like i'm gonna go by the farm and drove by and i'm like i could see, see two deer they're literally 150 yards off a of main paved road and I'm like, oh my gosh, like right on the farm, like I know exactly what this is all gonna be about. Drove over there and there's the deer I've been looking for for the last like 17 days. And he is right there with her. I could have killed him with a gun off the road if I wanted to um, and he's not letting her go anywhere. Yeah. And uh, so I went and got the pizza, took it home. My mother-in-law was uh, watching my daughter. So I just went and glassed him from the truck because it was getting in the evening. I, I, I mean, I couldn't get to a tree or nothing like that. And he's out in the middle of nowhere. Um, so I watched him there and then the next morning I'm like, I'm going to get up in, in the stand early and just let it get daylight and see if he's there. And as I got up in that stand and as it gets daylight there, him and her are in the same spot. So they were there all night. Mm -hmm. And then I hunted the whole next day, watching him until it got dark that night. And he stayed there all day. Um, and then the next day, the third day he was, they were gone. Okay. And I don't know where he went from there. So I'm like, that was pretty, you know, odd to see, but I mean, not too odd, but anyway, what I'm trying to do and what I'm seeing there is I'm still, I'm hunting those scrapes, those historical scrapes that are, yeah. that are normally getting hot at that time. I'm not letting, letting the, those deer getting locked down at that point. Cause that's, that's an anomaly in in my opinion. Not a lot of them are doing that. Um, I'm still approaching it that way and, and trying to get in some areas, you know, really just trying to like hone in on the historical data i i lean so heavily on historical data it's not even funny yeah uh probably probably to a uh probably to a detriment honestly yeah but um on the farms i'm hunting i'm still hoping i'm I'm still looking for that and uh my approach isn't really changing much in the pre-rut as far as like you know i i might go in and hunt a scrape even if i don't have any like recent information on that like i just know historically over the last five or six years it's hot it's gonna happen if Mm -hmm. i ride the hole here it's gonna happen um so i will do that as well.
0: yeah man i'm a huge believer in uh the pre-rut in on the main farm okay i i shouldn't say like i'm i'm this huge believer on, on the farms that I've hunted, because I've experienced it other ways uh, on the farm that I hunted from 2006 until about 2000. And I want to say 14 ish 2013, something, something in that where I was chasing that shipwreck buck. Yep. Right, Huge uptick in activity. I would say the pre rut ended a right around November 1st, 2nd timeframe. And and then it was the rut, the real rut. On the farm that I hunt now, pre-rut goes, man, the, the, the biggest, most mature bucks are not even, like, they're not even, they're, they're not even, like, interested in does quite yet, right? They're going out there, they're making their stra- scrapes. Why I've been successful on that farm is because of pre-rut activity. And hitting it at the right time every single year in that first seven days of November, where it's still the pre-rut, they're they're waiting for the does, and I feel like the bucks just get antier and antier and antier, and, and now they start to get a little aggressive, and they're they're bumping other bucks out. They're you know I killed my deer not this year but the previous year. I went into a kind of a Man, it's like I would call it a, a mini staging area that before they head up to this finger uh, to go to a, a main, a maiden food source. Long story short, uh, man, I grunted and snort wheezed this buck in. He started raking trees, so I was able to read his body language and there was they he wasn't chasing does, does walked by. Uh, he looked at him. He didn't even go to scent check him. And so that's pre-rut activity, if you ask me. Right. There's no there's no breeding happening. And if there is, uh, it's not happening in, in this area. Right. And so now the the pre ruts pushed back or the it, it's pushed into November. And I feel I feel like that is when big bucks are at their most vulnerable, vulnerable, as far as being called is concerned with that simple one toot grunt. You know, the or the snort wheeze, especially on a big mature buck. They're just like, nah, dude, I've already kicked everybody's ass. Who's this guy? Yep. And so yep. I've I've just fallen in love with the pre rut. And I, I have to learn this on this new farm to when this pre rut time frame is. I killed a deer last year on it. I still think it was in that pre rut time frame on this farm as well. Just doing the same thing, get them in, seal the deal. Like, I, I don't know. Like, I feel like once the rut hits, chaos happens, and yes, they're vulnerable from they they turn stupid. But then the they're not working uh, terrain features as consistent. They're maybe cresting a ridge, or they're running straight in a bottom, or or they're all over the place, and then the consistency goes away, and and then then you lose that. That portion of it.
1: Tell me this, since we're talking about the trend thing, what, you know, you've been successful on some really big deer, um, score wise, and probably even age wise. Age wise, mostly. Tell, yeah. Okay. Okay. So my question to you is: those deer that you're killing and what you're saying is the pre-rut for you, are is that? Do you think is the the oldest deer on the farm? Do you think he's the king? on the farm and the reason why i ask is because i see this a little bit as well too yeah where you might still think it's this is me talking but i'm i might still think it's pre-rut and i'm killing these really good deer Mm -hmm. but am i killing the deer that is the mature guy in the area that is out there is it what i'm saying is it the pre-rut because there's another buck out there kicking these deer all around saying like, you guys need to back up a little bit. I'm getting the first doe around mm-hmm. here. So like you guys just kind of like stay away a little bit, do your thing. Does that make sense? Yeah, that- it
0: does. I, I know what you're getting at. Um, on the new farm this year, I shot or I uh, shot my buck and I felt like there was a little bit of a power vacuum that happened that I could witness on trail camera. Now, was this the the biggest antlered buck? No, but I felt I I had a gut feeling that told me he was the dominant buck in the area. Once I pulled him out, and then when I went back in March to check trail cameras, I saw a flood of deer come in to this farm. And there was a whole bunch of big deer, and there was chaos. Like the pictures showed me deer running, deer chasing. And yes, that's what happens in the rut, but there's several big deer that I didn't have on trail camera. Until the rut kicked off. So I felt like that buck was keeping other deer out. Now, on my main farm, I'm going to say that there's enough room and terrain features and area and doe groups to where there can be two kings of the castle, right? And they stay away from each other because in 2020. 2022, let's see, I'm trying to think here, 2021, when I shot my buck, that buck, this 2023, 2022, yeah, 2021, I shot a real, a big wide one, I think he was the king of this little area, but if I was to go 500 yards down, there's a completely different buck on trail camera, hassling a different doe group, and that buck never showed up. On, on that mm-hmm. uh, on that terrain feature in the little staging area so but he but there was two different uh doe groups one was on the ridge and one was down in the river bottom and so I feel like they wouldn't overlap until they handled their business with that doe group he handled his business with his doe group and then they started to cruise right sure and so. I feel like I, I just kind of go back to your question. I just feel like it's all about the availability of does and that's, what's going to hold the bucks. A buck doesn't need to fight if there's does available. So there's plenty of does available. So these, these mature bucks can all move in. They can live, they can live in, they can coexist for the time being until all the does are bred and then they will fight once their territories overlap. That's 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 kind of an assumption and just information from, from trail cameras. Now, same question to you, though. Um,
1: in Michigan, I don't think – it's probably on a smaller scale just because, I mean, for us to get a four- or five-year-old or older is very difficult. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not in, – in my area, I know there's places you can do it. Um, but, like, you know, I think – I think you see a lot of coexisting around in in Michigan in my area. Like I just because when you get a deer that might be king, you know he is he's an anomaly. Yeah. Unless he's a very aggressive deer in in nature, and he might be a three year old. I mean, the deer I killed I killed a a buck in um in twenty twenty. No. Yeah, twenty twenty here, and I chased him in nineteen and twenty. I believe it was. And in 19, I thought he was a three-year-old. He was just a big burly deer. He was only a six point. He was just a a clean six, but he always had like that big neck, like just a big pop belly. And I'm like, man, I feel like he's like a three-year-old. Yeah. And then I ended up shooting him in 21 or 20. I'm like, for sure. Four-year-old. He was 250 pounds on the hoof. And I'm like, you know, he's an eight pointer. He got real heavy mass. He was like 120 inch deer got him aged, he was three and a half, Yeah. you know, and, but that deer was a deer that acted like a four or five year old. He, you would never see him with other deer. Personality. You would never see, personality was, was completely an aggressive deer. He would, um, you know, when you'd see him in a bean field, you could see him walk for 400 yards and he'd just be like Eeyore out there. Just yeah. like, you know, like don't freaking touch me. I felt like his ears were always back for some reason. Yeah. Like he was just, he always looked like he was in the rut. Just a big burly deer. So like a deer like that. When I look back at that year, how many shooter bucks I did I have on the farm in the summer? I had like four or five that yeah. I would shoot. What I'm talking like 120 or better that were probably three year olds. There could have been some two year olds in there, but like I had I had a great year. Yeah. But then when the fall came, the fall came. And a lot of them left, yeah. you know. And and you're gonna get that turnover, but like usually I'll have one or two or three deer coexist, you know, that are that I consider shooter bucks. Yeah. Usually I will have that that year. I did not. Um. Yeah. And he he ruled it like he. I saw him a lot, yeah. a lot. Like I encountered him a couple times, but I saw him glassing a lot. He yeah. was so visible, and um, you know. And then coming into the year that I did shoot him. He was a ghost. I saw him in the summer. I knew he existed. And then I think the last picture I got him was October 8th, something like that. Never glass him again. November 2nd comes around and I'm doing a hot lap in the morning and then he's locked down with a dough. Yeah. And he, I was able to do a spot and stalk on him and, and get an arrow at him. Yeah. So it's like, you know, uh, I guess I think I am killing like the top 10% of my bucks. So. I, I don't know. I, don't, I guess I don't know how to answer it. I, I think the ones that I'm trying to kill and the ones I am killing are the top 10%. So they're the ones that like are kicking the other deer out. Right. You know, does that make sense?
0: Yeah. It, well, well, what we're uh, identifying here is that age, like dominance has nothing to do with age class. No. Right. So I don't think so. I, I've, I've watched a three-year-old beat the shit out of a five-year-old before. Okay. Mm-hmm. I've watched a uh, 120 inch, Uh, 120-inch six-year-old beat the shit out of a uh, 155-inch, he was a four-year-old, okay? And so dominance just means that particular deer is, because there's always a hierarchy. I mean, there's hierarchies in does, there's hierarchies in in bucks for sure during the breeding season, Uh, and I think that starts as soon as the velvet comes off. You know, I'm pretty sure it does. That's why there's this huge shift is because deer are going, hey, uh, we're not friends anymore. I'm I'm stronger. No, I'm stronger. And sometimes it takes a fight. Sometimes it just takes a little bullying. But dominance has, in my opinion, has nothing to do with age class. I would say nine times out of ten, an older buck will probably be more dominant just because he's got another year of size on him. Uh, And sometimes the, you know, but that's personality as well. I've watched, I've watched a, uh, I've watched a doe group for five days in a row come out and a couple three-year-olds come out with them every single, uh, every single day. And then one day the big dog shows up in late October. He comes in and all he does is put his ears back and turn sideways. And the other deer just left. They just left. And so... Yeah, so when the age structure, the only difference is the age structure is different in Iowa than it is in Michigan. You're going after three-year-olds, but that three-year-old is the dominant, he's he's the dominant buck on that property. And mm-hmm. then I think my my answer is that the dominant, there's there is an opportunity for there to be multiple dominant bucks in a given area based off of the availability of does, if that makes sense.
1: Yep, 100% makes yeah. sense. And that's, I see that as well, like in a lot of the stuff I'm talking about is like ag, ag ground. I do have some big wood stuff, you know, close to me as well that I hunt a lot. And that is, that that's harder to hunt. It mm-hmm. is definitely. And, and the deer density there is ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, ridiculous. We have so many does, but now here in the ag that I have, the ground, i mean you might only see a, a deer or two a night yeah you know and you can see forever but i like that because that gets the deer up and moving yeah that tells those bucks that they have to move they right. have to they're not going to hole up in a five acre patch of timber every day all day during the rut they're going to move you're going to see them yeah it might be the most boring hunting you've ever experienced but it's going to happen yeah um so that's why i like the whole ag ground stuff and you might have let's say a hundred does on your farm i probably have honestly in the farm like the ag i'm talking about i have like a group of four to five does that i think all at home and the the reason why is because i see them every day and i see them like there's always the same mom and she's got markings on her i she's probably about seven years old now yeah and You know, she's always got like another adult doe that hangs out with her, but then they always have a couple fawns with them and that's it. And I I could tell you right where they live, I can tell you what woodlot they live in, what they frequent, at what times of the year. It's you know, and it it kind of makes it difficult in a way though, because you're kind of at the mercy of those does and when they come into Mm estrus, You know, so you know, if you get into that latter part of the year, the pre-rut you're talking about um you're hoping that one of them comes into estrus because there's a good chance your odds are pretty low that if a buck's gonna just gonna come and check just just to check he knows yeah they're 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 a home game every year mm-hmm. or every day because they live out there he knows those does intimately yeah. he knows when sally comes into to heat like mm-hmm. he's probably bred her before like i really think that with those deer so it can be very touchy with with the ag thing.
0: Yeah. All right, outside of Michigan, what state have you hunted the second most? So outside, not counting Michigan, what's the next state you have spent the most time in? Kansas. Kansas. Okay. Now, Kansas. Yeah. I want to now. I want to compare Michigan to Kansas. All right, and we're talking about trends again. Everybody says Michigan is a high pressure state, right? And now we're stepping out off to Kansas, which is a whole different animal compared to, uh, Michigan. Yep. Are there any, does the pressure in Michigan cloudy, the trend or being able to identify trends that you think, or do you, like, do you have to work harder or versus Kansas where things happen more cut and dry, more black and white? Um, do you understand the question? Like,
1: yes, I, I have, the, I
0: have the idea in my head. I, I'm glad you get it. Okay.
1: Yep. I hopefully I answer this right, but yes, I, so in my experience, so there's probably other Michigan guys that are listening to this are going to be mother effing me through here. But yeah. in my experience, I think the pressure does cloudy the trends yeah. because, and, and I have two farms that I hunt here in Michigan, one farm, it's just me that hunts it. Yeah. The other farm is 11 other guys, 10 other guys with me. Yep. They're two vastly different farms, but when I go to Kansas or Ohio or Illinois or Iowa or Missouri, I can see, I always say, I see big bucks do big buck things. Yeah. There's more times than not, Dan, that that I'll see a, what I think is like a upper class deer here in Michigan, like a three or four year old, you know, at noon steps out in a bean field, October 8th. And you're and I, I say it all the time. What are you doing? Mm-hmm why are you doing that right now yeah and when i'm in kansas and i see that and i'm like i don't say that at all yeah because of the lack of pressure but yes i agree with you like that deer but but i will tell you this on the farm that i hunt more with more people on i will not see a deer do that at noon right But the farm that i hunt one person on i will see that every year multiple times a year you know and it's Um, I do see more deer, like doing deer things on that farm. So, yeah, I, I do think it cloudy is cloudy is the trends and, um, you know, that's why it's kind of hard to explain, you know, from a Michigan standpoint, like some of the, like, it's kind of hard to compare what you're doing in Iowa to what I'm doing in Michigan in a way, you know, um, but yeah, Michigan or uh, Kansas, like a state like Kansas is very black and white to me. Yeah. My experiences in Kansas, there has been pressure. Don't mm-hmm. get me wrong. But like deer just deer do deer things like you've read about, like you've watched on videos, like you watched on YouTube, like yep. deer do those things. And it's like, then you look at it when something happens, like you might kill a deer. Like I killed a big deer in Iowa in 19 and I killed a midday and it was like, oh my God. Yes. Like that's the first one I've ever killed midday. And it's like, it worked. It actually worked. You yep. know what I mean? Yep. Um, so it, it's, it's just pretty crazy how, you know, geographically and, and, and stuff like that, how it, it changes. Hopefully yeah. that answers your question no, right.
0: That, that's awesome. Because I, I really do feel like pressure is the key indicator here. Yeah. Right. There's more pressure on my main farm than on the on my new farm. So this first year I was blown away by the cell camera pictures that were getting sent to me, uh, and when I w- finally went and checked the rest of my trail cameras in March, the amount of daylight activity I saw from mid-October to mid-November. Like, deer just aren't supposed to be this active. Uh, I, I, in a normal, in a, on a normal year, on a normal farm, I'm comparing two farms. One has zero pressure, one has, mid, like, more pressure i'm not going to try to justify yep. but just more pressure and so even on that more pressure it's also uh the farm my main farm has uh livestock on it that it has it's it's farms so there's activity you know throughout the fall uh people coming and cutting trees down and and you know the whole the whole active farming scenario and on this new farm, there was no, there was none of that. They came in, they planted, and then they came in and they harvested. And then maybe in the summer a couple times, they would mow hay at, or mow grass, bale it, and then get it out of there. That's it. Other Until I stepped in. And so now, dude, my trail cameras were showing like 11, 12, 1 o'clock deer, like, like mature bucks on their feet just moseying. And it, it, okay. it, it blew, it blew my mind, the activity that I was seeing. So again, pressure is the key indicator there.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Would you say that, uh, would you say, now? I think you kind of like hit on this, but like you're killing more of your bucks in the pre-rut and you really love that time yeah. frame. Is it just because you can call the deer and respond? Cause you did talk about, you know, how yeah. you like to call the deer. Like that's so much fun, isn't it? Oh, like, dude, would you say best. that that is the biggest, biggest driver is that being like your favorite time
0: well yes right i mean it's just that i figured it out i i figured out the deer herd on the farms how they use the terrain features so the first step is putting your your tree stand in the right position to catch the movement right the second is being able to identify what the body language of this deer is. Is he callable? And when I see a lone mature buck raking a tree, it's a no brainer for me to throw one grunt out there and it just pisses them off to the point <laughs> where they're like, what? And they come and investigate. And so, or I snort wheeze at them or something like that. If if they're being aggressive, I will be aggressive back to them, especially mm-hmm. if they're a mature buck. And so they just, they, they get curious, they come in and mm-hmm. it just, it's just so happens that I'm able to get in there certain times a year. Now, if there's a, a buck trailing a doe or there's some kind of other doe in, in the area and I try to do that single grunt, they don't, they don't come in to investigate. They typically stay with the does they, that they're messing around with or they're following, yep. following a doe. They, they won't come to investigate. In my, 18 years of bow hunting, I have only pulled one buck off of a doe to come in and in, 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 investigate. And I've never.
1: How uh, did how'd you do
0: that? Uh, the same. I just did the same thing. Um, well, okay. no, wait. Let me think. It was in 2017. The buck I shot. He, I think he's a I'm pretty sure he's a four year old. Maybe could be five, but I'm. I'm thinking he's a four year old uh 17 yeah I think he's 17 114 days in a row and he came in and he bedded down uh, or a doe bedded down he bedded down next to the doe and like he was panting, so he'd been chasing her a long time she stood up worked out of shooting range I threw a grunt at him he looked my direction he looked at the doe started following the doe uh, I, I blew one more kind of a, bop, 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 that was it. And he turned and he came in and I shot him brought like broadside at like tw- uh, 27, eight yards, something like that. Anyway, mm-hmm. the point is that only happened one time, every other time, whether I'm rattling, whether I am uh grunting snort wheezing the call the calling does not work typically if there's does in the like if they're following a doe or they come in behind does
1: yep no i agree and that's uh i've never pulled a a buck off of a doe but honestly you know with with the amount of -of out-of-state hunting i've done you know i've been filming my whole life so i i could only hunt the times that when I wasn't filming and everybody wants to be filmed during the rut and stuff like that. So I was hunting a lot of early and then late, like Missouri, I was hitting Missouri like in January and hunting food patterns and, and was able to be successful doing that a couple of times. So, you know, a lot of my, the bulk of my rut hunting has been in Michigan. So the calling, I wouldn't say it's out the window, rattling pretty much out the window. But what I love is a bleat, like Mm -hmm. a can call from Primos. Love that call. Yeah. and uh a buck roar and you know i i agree with you if i can get a three-year-old buck to be by himself and i i i hunted this deer i called bomb pop because he had an uh, a tine that looked like one of those bomb pops uh yep. suckers yep. um and uh so i hunted him he was a good deer he's probably like right around pope and young and uh it was an evening hunt i was hunting a field edge all beans all beans and he pops out of a woodlot he's probably he's probably 150 yards from me and i'm like man i can't blow a grunt at him right now all he's doing is a tree fell into the the field and the farmer couldn't harvest the beans right there so he's just hammering beans by himself mm-hmm. and uh this is during the rut and i'm like i'm gonna hit him with a bleat and see if i can get him like oh there's a hot doe over here kind of thing hit him with a bleat, he looks up and uh, i mean he could clear clear his day see me if if you know i was blowing a blowhorn basically yeah and then he'd go back to feeding so i hit him with another bleat and he goes back he looks up goes back to feeding i'm like okay now i'm gonna really get you because i'm gonna hit you with a tending grunt and i did and he peeks up and he he like takes two steps at me and he comes running on a string to me because yeah. what he heard was okay there's a hot dog over there i'll get over there eventually but then when he heard the buck it's like no i gotta go now i it. have I competition have yeah now i got competition he yeah. comes into 35 yards i actually had a decoy out which helped as well but he saw the decoy, didn't come in and face him like normal. He went around backside of him and caught the wind and blew out. And I was trying to self film, and they yeah. went through my hole. And a lot of excuses, Dan. I'll tell tell you all about him, but I didn't end up getting a shot at him. I'm like, damn it, you know. So, yeah. but like one of those things is just like you said. I love reading deer and trying to trying to figure them out, and that just yeah. helps so much when you can when you can uh, do that.
0: Yeah, and I think the moral of the story, the moral of this conversation is. You got to do, if you want to learn, you have to do more than just hunt. You have to observe. And that once I, in 2016, so from 2006 until 2015, I, I just hunted. I was just going out and hunting. In 2000, starting in 2016, I started observing. I started calculating, you know, that historical data that you talked about. And so that using that information, uh, referencing that information, observing all of that led to me now it, it like kind of clicking for, for me. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. I can't preach that if I'm going to be a preacher, I'm going to preach, dude, you, ha- you have to observe, get off your phone, watch, watch how deer just, Oh, don't just say, Oh, it's a doe, but identify the the path she's on identify how much vegetation is on the trees identify what the thermals are doing identify all that stuff because that will all that matters like i feel like all of it matters
1: yeah and it just goes back to like when we started talking about baseball and sports and everything and being a kicker and a closing pitcher and it's like you know what those guys are doing a lot they can't be in the game all the time so they're observing they're they're sponges they're trying to you know Essentially hunters are not in the game all the time until Mm -hmm. that moment of truth happens in a, in a sense. So it's like, I agree with you hundred percent. Always ask yourself why, and always observe, always trying to learn every experience you go out. I don't go to a tree anymore and it's just like, eh, just going to hunt. You know, I'm going to hunt. I don't do that anymore because when I started, when I stopped doing that and putting more calculated sits in is when I was more successful Yeah, and observing more and, I love to glass. I'm a big glasser. I will glass more than I will hunt. And uh, it has definitely paid off in the last couple of years.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. And I I think this is a great place to stop. Lots more good conversation coming our way out of these sessions that we're going to be doing. And uh, hopefully what it does is it gets people's brains firing. It gets people thinking. Uh, It gets us fired up, most importantly, for the upcoming season and what we need to do. And uh, some of it's going to be, Uh, prepared and some of it's going to be shooting from the hip but Aaron man I really appreciate you taking time out of your your day to and week really to do this because we're going to be doing a lot more of these and uh, so thank you for your time and thank you for your insight and until next time my man
1: yeah thank you Dan I appreciate it
0: and there you have it ladies and gentlemen huge shout out uh, to Aaron, man, really appreciate him taking time to go do this. Uh, huge shout out to Tethered, Wasp, Vortex, Hunt Stand, and the Woodman's Pal. Uh, we got some more companies jumping on board here uh, late summer or, yeah, mid to late summer, and then uh, maybe in the fall as well. So please go out and support the companies that support this podcast. Huge shout out to all of you. Please go to iTunes, leave a five star review, let everybody know that this uh, podcast is the shit. And then, uh, man, it's all about good vibes, man. We got we to gotta stay positive. So good vibes in, good vibes out, and we will talk to you next time.